Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, the old Metro bus, remember him? He is now the head of transportation in Maryland. What does that mean for DC commuters? And Congress people, meanwhile, are scheming to overrule local voters. How likely are they to succeed? Also, DC's running out of movie theaters, if you haven't noticed. I'm here with Axios reporter Junaid Dill and audio producer Julia Karen to chat about how we feel about it all. Today is Friday, January 27th, 2023. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. So Julia Karen, our awesome audio producer, she is going to talk to us about one of us, a name you may recognize in a different context, who's just got a new job. That's Paul Wiedefeld. He was the head of Metro, and Wes Moore, the new Maryland governor, has just named him transportation secretary. So why don't you tell us what that means for us and maybe start with what does a transportation secretary do in the state of Maryland? So the transportation secretary is going to oversee like six different transportation things in Maryland. The big things that Wiedefeld is going to oversee, at least in Maryland, are the Purple Line. As we all know, I have feelings on the Purple Line. I won't believe it's there until I'm standing on it and going to Silver Spring from Bethesda. He's also going to oversee the I-495 and 270 toll lane project that's going to go on in the coming years. Uh, Wes Moore has said that he's vetted Wiedefeld. He's the right guy for the gig. He's from a family of civil servants. He has extensive transportation background. He was formerly the executive director of BWI Airport and also Maryland Transit Administrator. Um, A lot of civil servants and people in Maryland politics are like, yes, like this guy, he's the one. He's got the experience. He's got the know-how. He can do it. But Wiedefeld also left under dubious circumstances. Uh, Chunet, you've done some reporting on this. Can you please explain? Yeah, he left on a sour note. I mean, he came in to Metro and people printed T-shirts like in Paul We Trust and whatever because everyone believed he was going to save the you know system. Uh, and then he left, what was it, like 60% of trains not in service because of the wheel issue. And then he had the safety certification issue with the drivers. I mean, and, and it was always unclear how much of it he knew because Metro said they had known about it sort of for four years and did it reach Wiedefeld. It's kind of hard to like, I don't know how it doesn't reach the general manager, but uh, that 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 was the circumstances he left in. So is this the kind of thing that ought to render somebody like unemployable or at least uh, hard to hire for uh, someone who is a p- elected public official? They're different jobs, I guess. But it, it does make you wonder, like he has to run the purple line now, for instance. And then like, does Baltimore get a red line? And these are rail projects, again, that he has to work on. So... Does that render him disqualified? I don't I don't know, but it's not great. 
when you say run the like he's the transportation secretary, is he just it, I mean, is run just mean like keep the spigots of money open and somebody else is actually the, the administrator on on each of these things? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like it's fundamentally a different job, I suppose, in many ways. But he's the public face for transportation in Maryland now, and he's going to have to make riders happy. And that didn't happen at Metro. Right. One other thing that I find very interesting about this is that Randy Clark, who's the current GM of Metro, is going to have to report to Wiedefeld, who's now going to be the transportation secretary, regarding Maryland Metro line service, which I think is fascinating. So because he, he, as transportation secretary, he would be a member of the Metro board, therefore one of uh, bosses. Yes. Yes. Which I find fascinating and very interesting. So like, New boss, same as the old boss at Metro, almost kind of sort of. Wiedefeld has said he's going to, like, give Randy Clark advice and help him out and, you know, wade through it. But I don't know. I mean, do I want advice from the guy that had a bunch of 7000 series trains get derailed and have wheel issues and then have him say that, you know, he wasn't told about it because it didn't rise above middle management because they thought it was a wheel warranty problem and not a safety problem? I don't know. I'm very conflicted on it. Well, can I ask a couple of questions about what's going to be on his plate in the new job? And that's going to be relevant to the purple line um, about which you have feelings. This is the light rail system in uh, the Maryland suburbs of D.C. What has uh, moved very slowly. The former governor, Hogan, was very skeptical of spending on big transit projects. There was concern that he was going to kill the whole thing. He didn't kill it, but he forced it to get much cheaper, essentially. He did kill a line in Baltimore. Is there a sense that the new administration in Maryland is going to be uh, take a different approach to these sorts of projects, either the ones that are existent or future ones that might come up? So one of the big things that Westmore said about why he wants Wiedefeld in this position is because they have similar similarly aligned views on transportation and what it means for Maryland and what they can actually accomplish with the projects. I imagine Westmore's goal is let's find a way to get this purple line going. Let's find a way to get these toll lanes up and running and, you know, try to do it in a cost effective way. But obviously, if we need to put money into it, we put money into it. And if they're aligned on it and they can actually push it through instead of holding it back, then maybe Wiedefeld is the guy for the job. And if he succeeds in, you know, getting the purple line off the ground, you know, I will eat crow. I will stand corrected. I will offer an official apology to Paul Wiedefeld. Will you explain what the the toll lanes mean? The Federal Highway Administration basically said, yes, Maryland can add HOV toll lanes on different parts of I-270 and I-495. It's another public-private partnership, which, as we might be familiar with, is the same thing as the Purple Line. So again, this is going to be a matter of who's contracting this workout, who's installing all this stuff, how much money is it going to cost? So, I mean, hopefully, again, Wiedefeld is the guy that's going to get this over the finish line. Wait, this is the kind of thing that like liberal governments have been, like the new Maryland administration, have been skeptical of. They called them Lexus lanes, mm-hmm. you know, for the rich people get to, who or people who are willing to pay, get to get to ride in style while everyone else has to be jammed up. Is there any suggestion that more is going to like do less of these? I don't know. I haven't seen anything from him saying he's going to immediately tank the project. Like part of this is that they need to expand the American Legion Bridge. That's going to cost $5 billion anyways. And if you know what the American Legion Bridge is, it's the one that crosses the Potomac from Virginia to Maryland. So they want to expand that in some way, shape or form. And also, I imagine, rehab it because it is pretty old. So I think part of it is also going to be just like rehabbing sections of I-270 and I-495 that probably need it. 
Montgomery County, I mean, clashed pretty heavily with Hogan over this plan. And their D.C. council members opposed to it, too, because they don't want another sort of wider highway flowing into D.C. and more cars with it. So more is going to have to work with Montgomery County and Weedafeld, too, to figure out what they want to do here. It's sort of funny. Weedafeld left Metro and there was a lot of tongue-biting among Montgomery County officials who were unhappy with how Metro ended up, and they didn't want to kick a man while he's down, sort of, and now, well, he's back. How are (laughs) they going to work together? Wait, I have one other question. When Larry Hogan first became governor, one of the things he did uh, right off the bat was he slashed tolls on bridges, including like the, the Bay Bridge. And this was seen at the time as, you know, here is a a Republican governor of Maryland who's actually governing like a Republican, which is to say uh, skeptical of transit and, you know, in favor of drivers. And uh, the idea was that uh, drivers have been unfairly charged and they should be charged less. The other side of that was drivers should have to pay for the cost of, of roads and of the, you know, all the stuff they do to society. Is there any indication that those tolls might go up under Wiedefeld uh, and more? Uh, have they said anything about that? Um, uh, is that a thing? Uh, no, nobody wants to be the governor who raises tolls. People going to Ocean City will want to know. <laughs> oh, yeah. People going to Ocean City, people going to Bethany Beach, myself included. You know, can that easy pass lane, how fast can I fly through it to just get to the beach? That's my that's my question. But yeah, I don't They haven't know. said anything. Not to my knowledge, no. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. All right, let's talk for a second about the bigger picture. And this is a thing that is a perennial in local D.C. uh, news and politics, which is threats from members of Congress against home rule, which is our rickety and incomplete 50-year-old system of uh, self-governance in D.C. Junaid, this is something that you have done a ton of reporting on since before the election. Uh, We have a newly empowered Republican uh, Congress where particularly far-right members of Congress are especially empowered. D.C. has traditionally been a low-cost place where leadership can let them go nuts because, you know, after all, uh, who cares uh, other than the folks who live here? Talk to us about the scene now and what the news is that you've been reporting on this week. Yeah, Congress, which is like our super city council, there's a new, you know, House GOP effort to meddle in D.C. In many ways, it's striking because it goes further than what Republicans tried in the early years of the Trump presidency, even though they controlled, you know, both chambers of Congress and Trump was in there. This kind of goes farther. And I guess it kind of speaks to there's a more cohesive strategy on the part of the Republicans to actually interfere in D.C. this time around. So you have this conservative sort of hardline 
congressman from Georgia, Andy Clyde, who is drafting, has, you know, is about to introduce a bill to block D.C.'s reform of the criminal code, which... He he is the member of Congress who referred to January 6th as a normal tourist visit. Ah, uh, yes. That's right, yeah. Uh, real tough on crime. And these D.C. home rule foes come with the name Andy for some reason. There's Andy <laughs> Harris, who is the architect of why we can't legalize the sale of marijuana and tax it. And Andy Harris, and now it's Andy Clyde, who's the new, new D.C. foe, who wants to repeal home rule entirely, by the way, and doesn't think the mayor is something that should exist. So there's crime and drugs. What are the other areas of action up there on the Hill when it comes to legislating for the city? Republicans also want to block the district from allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections. So that's another sort of very sort of you know, progressive measure that the council passed. And Congress has a bill to try and stop that as well. But these are all sort of long shot standalone bills that are being introduced in Congress because, you know, Democrats control the Senate. It's not going to pass the Senate. President's not going to sign it. But all this does is drum up all this attention, all these headlines for Fox News and other conservative media and across the city and put pressure on the district. And they can try and hold hearings and call people in and, you know, build this sort of firestorm around the city. And if these bills fail, they can try and tack them on as riders to spending bills, which is less sexy and less sort of loud, but more efficient in some ways. I mean, this is the kind of thing that drives uh, D.C. residents absolutely crazy, that we are American citizens. Yeah. We vote, you know, we pay local taxes. We vote for a government locally that will figure out how to spend those tax dollars. And then somebody who represents a bunch of people in Georgia who don't live here comes in and uh, overrules that. What is the strategy on the part of the local elected officials or activists or whoever to push back against this? I mean, if you can find one, let me know. I don't see one <laughs> in all my reporting. I mean, it's just like Eleanor Holmes Norton is always going to stand up for the district and Democrats in the Senate say we're going to try our darnest to get rid of riders that show up. But it's like if there's a rider and Republicans say, go ahead, shut down the government. Well, now it's up to Democrats. How far do they go? And then it becomes sort of this contest where D.C. might get traded away again. Right. And historically, that's the move. It's kind of the easiest card to trade. Because, after all, you may be a well-intentioned, good uh, left-wing brother uh, representing someplace else. Uh, your constituents don't live here. And so it's kind of easy for you to, to suck it up on that one. Yeah. But yeah. I would say that it's harder if D.C. becomes a state. And we're going to go over this, you know, for years to come, right? Eleanor Holmes Norton has reintroduced, you know, a bill that would make D.C. the 51st state. Senator Tom Carper from Delaware introduced that same one in the Senate. Junaid, I imagine you don't think that these are going to pass, but they're mostly symbolic, right? Yeah, I mean, it keeps the conversation flowing. It keeps statehood, you know, out there still. But it's really far out there now with the House out. And I asked, you know, the senators and Norton why D.C. couldn't just get the federal riders that exist already removed. Why couldn't D.C. under Democratic control, unified government, get rid of the block on legalizing marijuana sales and a block on funding abortions in D.C. And the senators were like, well, we funded all these other big bills like infrastructure and all these other things. And like, sorry. <laughs> right. 
Wait, I got to ask you, as a reporter who covers this, what's it like when you call their, these offices, particularly of the, the far right members, and you say, you explain what you're calling about and stuff? Uh, what, what kind of response do you get? How knowledgeable are they about it? And how much do they treat this as a ridiculous issue and, and your questions as ridiculous? Well, I mean, it, it, the, one of the funny things is just how much these Republican staffers are like getting an education in D.C., local D.C., a lot of this stuff that they get upset about will percolate up through to like Fox News or something. And then that's how like one of their staffers catches word of it. Like if I ask them about some obscure bill that they might consider blocking, it's almost like I'm the first one to sometimes tell them that. Or it's someone like Pat Mara, who is a longtime D.C. GOP chairman locally. He, you know, has conversations he's told me with Hill Republicans about what's going on in D.C. or they'll call up some consultants in D.C. and try and figure out intel on what's happening in D.C. They're kind of learning on the fly. But we got to move on. But is there any indication that people are coming for abortion rights? Well, Andrew Clyde has said he's floated the idea of curtailing more abortion rights in D.C. And that's very serious, obviously. There's already a rider a block on, you know, funding abortions for low income you know, in D.C., but we'll have to see, I guess. But everything could be on the table, I suppose. All right. So here's the thing that uh, probably won't be on the table, but we could actually use some congressional help on, which is what the hell, what the heck is happening to our movie theaters? The Regal Theater, that's the one in Gallery Place. It uh, is closing. This comes on the heels of the the theater that's in the in Friendship Heights, in the Maza Gallery, that closed. And the celebrated Uptown Theater, this one of the last of the sort of big old-fashioned movie palaces, that closed in 2020. This is a part of a national change in how people are consuming movies and consuming media, but it's been really pronounced in D.C. And, you know, and I was actually, I did a bunch of reading about this in the last couple of days. And, you know, over the years, the movie theaters in D.C. have changed a whole lot. We've pick up like a phone book, uh, remember those, from the 60s, and you look up where the movie theaters are, you know, a lot of them now are CVSs. There was a big theater <laughs> on MacArthur. That was, yeah, that's MacArthur. a CVS now. The Biograph in Georgetown's a CVS now. There's others that are like Wells Fargo's. There's very few of them that are like movie theaters now. And then we went to the sort of more mall movie theater concept, and then malls themselves are in trouble and the theaters with them. And then the pandemic came, and we're now dealing with the, the fallout. But it, it has left a, a kind of a big and interesting sort of hole in the market. There's a theater in Georgetown uh, you know, under the freeway there. Every time I go there, it seems incredibly crowded. It is. It's always crowded. It's always packed. There, there is never a good time to go see a movie there. I can attest to that. But it seems that it's a little bit like like our business, like media, where, where all of these people are sort of fumbling about trying to find a new model that will work. The theater near me, the Avalon up mm. on Upper Connecticut Avenue, Great that was theater. another beautiful old movie palace. It uh, went under like 20 years ago. People in the community formed a nonprofit and it is it now runs as a nonprofit. And it's this weird hybrid where they will have like I saw the James Bond movie there. They'll have like a big mainstream movie. Those are obviously very expensive to put on. And then combine that with more arty things and with things like sponsored by embassies and stuff. There's places like uh, the uh, Atlantic Plumbing which are, you know, kind of like you have a night out, which happens to have a movie. You can drink, you can, you can do other things. It's not like a big movie joint like that. There's an Alamo in, in Northeast. 
There's sort of second run theater, like the uh, what's it called, the Miracle on on the Hill, which will have second run movies, but also rent themselves out for performances and so on. I feel like somewhere in here there's a model for the future of movie theaters, but in the meantime, there is no sort of big gala or very few sort of big gala. Everyone's here, opening night kind of theaters left. Well, isn't it the case that like a lot of movies just come out on streaming now too? It's like yes. What's the incentive, I guess, to if, if it's just out there already? So there is an incentive to watch the movies in a theater. And as an audio nerd, it is the sound quality. So you might notice that when you watch a video on your phone or on your TV where the speakers are in the back of the TV, it sounds like characters are mumbling a little bit. And that's because when they format some of these movies that are supposed to be released in theaters, they have a bunch of different audio streams, and it's for surround sound and all these huge arcing sound systems. And so when you compress it down to 7.1, then 5.1, then stereo, and then mono, and you're watching it on your phone or on your TV, you have to turn on the subtitles. So to watch a movie and not have to see subtitles alone, bring back the Uptown Theater. But look, this is obviously a national thing, but... My theory is people want to be together. It's why we live in cities in the first place. And it's why, I mean, movies, since the rise of like VHS and DVD players, like going to the movies has been objectively ridiculous. Like, why wouldn't you just wait a couple months and see it at home? Unless you are, and I think a pretty small percentage of the population who are audio nerds or a pretty small percentage of movies where it really is an amazing yeah. like visual spectacle. But the reason that theaters survived and even thrived after that was this sense of, you know, people seek community. So I feel like that's the thing that movies brought us. They brought us uh, together. I feel like that's not, that desire has not gone away. But what we've got is sort of a business and real estate problem that is uh, making it so that it's hard to do that while also uh, making enough money to pay rent. Is the model, the Alamo model, where, you know, I've been there and just get stuff your face with food kind of hard to eat honestly <laughs> but does anyone know if that's been is this a successful sustainable business model i think a bunch of these you know models have been successful and on sort of a small scale but like has anybody figured out a way to replicate them and guarantee them uh everywhere i don't know i think live events is is another sort of business that a lot of you know, struggling media companies lean on and a theater, you could see how it's sort of, or it's not going to be movies every night, but with some nights we will rent this out for events. We'll stage things here. We'll figure out a way to get the seats set up so that you can move a bunch of them and have a gala. Like that, that seems to me like, you know, if I controlled a large and expensive piece of real estate, I might try to do something like that. But I think people are fumbling around and trying to figure it out. And maybe we can have help from Andrew Clyde. <laughs> Andrew Clyde, let's go. The, Functional the movie theaters in the district. Right. The movie theater bailout act of... The, 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 movie, the movie theater writer, Andy Harris. Let's <laughs> go, right. man. Movie theater writer. I know you got it in you. Jeanette Dill from Axios, thank you for joining us. And Julia, it's always awesome to have you here. Thanks. Thanks, man. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Today is Friday, December... Ah. 
what is wrong with me today? Yeah. <laughs> it's you guys, all good. I've got to stop drinking in the morning. <laughs>